Welcome back to Killer Fun, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Christy. And I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today, we are talking about The Handmaid's Tale, Season 2, Episode 1. We covered the first episode, the pilot, back in June of 2018, and the fourth season will be coming out Later this year, we don't have an exact date on that yet, but we thought we would like to cover the first episode of each season, and that would be a good way to do it. Not too many spoilers, but lots of interesting stuff to talk about. It is more than interesting. It is encaptivating. (laughs) Yes. I find myself completely addicted to this show, but also repelled by it. Uh huh. You know well, what I yeah, mean? Yeah, there's a lot of repulsive stuff happening here. It's just there are moments where it's like a little too much reality for some binge watching. <laughs> but Says the girl who can binge watch Black Mirror. Seriously. <laughs> but see, none of it's so real. I don't yeah. know something about this one. It's just um, this, this, uh, Margaret Atwood hats off to you because you, you have written something that really speaks to my fears, I think. It's personal. It's personal. Yeah. It's it's all my personal fear, I think. But I think she was also very insightful. Well, yes, it's your personal fear, but it's also a personal fear of a lot of women in modern day. So it's makes it super relatable. Fair, absolutely. Yeah. So we just want to address that this is the first time that we are not sitting in the same room while we record. This is a little sad for us. We're still working out remote COVID-19 recording together, but separately situation. So um, we don't, we're not sure what this audio is going to sound like. We think it'll be close to what you're used to, but if it's not, please bear with us. We, We're just going to try and bring you entertainment for as long as we can and, you know, maybe give you a little respite. (laughs) I don't know that The Handmaid's Tale is really much of a respite (laughs) from what's going on. (laughs) You know, but, well, dystopia, dystopia, I guess it goes with the theme. I don't know. It is hard because we didn't really have notice. We planned to get together today. But then the developing nature of this pandemic situation, all of a sudden I'm texting her about two hours before we're supposed to meet and saying, uh, I think I need to do this remotely. Yeah. And so we didn't have any time to prep our tech for this. We were all (laughs) set up in the studio, oh, Christy, and now I'm in studio, oh, my bedroom. So Uh I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's as with life. I mean, three weeks ago. This was not on my radar. I mean, I had heard about it. It was the thing happening on the other side of the world. Oh, we should, you know, be thinking about that. And now our children are out of school. Perhaps I would say is likely for the rest of the school year. And I mean, that upends everybody's life. So. I mean, kids are not going back to school for a very long time. And it really, like Uh you said, it's possible they may not go back this year at all. I know that uh, my youngest son is in a charter school. They've sent all the homework 
they've sent everything and he's already on a daily schedule of doing it all at home. And my oldest just got word they're going to be starting that this coming week. And so Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're prepping for a really long haul. So yeah, it's, it's frightening, but we're going to try and, uh, you know, maybe frighten you in a slightly different way. This one's a far (laughs) more fictional way. So it's maybe a little (laughs) less frightening and a little more fascinating. And we're going to talk about that, but we, I just, couldn't not address that. Absolutely. There are a lot of people impacted and our thoughts and prayers go out to everyone who is impacted. And we want you to know that we are taking every action that we can to participate in the community efforts to slow the roll. Uh, Yes. There's very little leaving and my children are very sad. (laughs) As am I, I like going out and as much as I like being at home, I also like meeting friends for coffee or having meetings with people or, you know, going to the grocery store without having to worry that somebody's going to cough on me and I'm going to murder my elderly parents. I mean, exactly. It's not just about the fear of getting it. It's about the fear of taking it home and passing it along. Right. Although I have to say, as much as I do really adore going to your house, Christy, and recording (laughs) and seeing certain people, I have been preparing for this moment for a long time. (laughs) Now, Yes, you're (laughs) well-equipped. I am well-equipped to stay at home. However, (laughs) however, my job begs that I continue working, and so I am at home, but furiously working. (laughs) Yes. I understand. All right. So let's talk about who's in the show. Now, as I said, we've covered The Handmaid's Tale previously, but it's been a minute. So let's talk about some of the people who are also in this show. So there's Elizabeth Moss as June Osborne. She, of course, had her big breakout in Mad Men. And she's going to be in a new movie called The Invisible Man. Oh, I've heard that that's pretty good. It looks really good. It looks interesting and fascinating and not terribly, not the same, but not a terribly different genre. Yeah, she seems to still have the, um, I don't know, I can't say action, but it is Uh kind of this action. And Handmaid's Tale is interesting because it's not action, but it's also action. And she does a really good job with this, this hybrid action dramatic role that that I don't know that I think is in there, but I have heard good things about Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, I look forward to someday being able to see it. Yeah, when <laughs> it's on it's, Netflix. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or Hulu. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, then we have uh, Ralph Fiennes, who's really only barely in this one as Commander Waterford. Um, he was Merlin in a single se- season of a show called Camelot. Uh, Monsignor Timothy Howard in American Horror Story, which I would guess other than this show is probably where most people know him from. Probably. Yvonne Strahovski, who plays Serena Joy Waterford, and um, she's, of course, the loveliest serial killer in Dexter, Hannah McKay. Of course. We love her. Of course. And she's also in a new Australian show called Stateless, and she plays the character Sophie Werner. It looks really interesting. I haven't seen that. I haven't even really heard of it, so I'll have to check that out. It came up on IMDb. It's Australian, so I hadn't really heard of it at all, but it looks 
interesting. And Dowd, of course, is Aunt Lydia. She's been in tons of stuff. She had a very creepy lead in The Leftovers. And she's been working consistently in show business since like 1990. She is such a familiar face. I just, I love her face. Something Mm -hmm. about it, even in this, when she has angry face a lot, but even in this, it's just wonderful. Something about her. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd love to hate Aunt Lydia. And I'm reading The Testaments, uh, which is the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale that just came out in 2019 that uh, Margaret Atwood wrote. And she features heavily in that. And you really get an really interesting new perspective on her. Well, I do like as the show goes on, we do get to learn a little bit more, but it has been a slow burn to find out about her past. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's always kind of a question mark. You know, is she a good guy underneath? Is she the unlikely hero? What is she? Uh (laughs) You know, that's an excellent question. (laughs) It's one that may not be answered in the show. We'll see. We'll see. O.T. Fagbanel, who plays Luke Bankhole, his big break was in the movie called Breaking and Entering in 2006 with Jude Law and Robin Wright. Um, He was the lead in HBO's Looking, which was uh, about a group of men in San Francisco. I think it was sort of similar to like Tales of the City. Oh, I never was, saw that. It was kind of like Tales of the City was great. Oh. Um, I didn't see Looking. I don't think it lasted very long, but he was he looks a lot different than he did in Looking. Um, he's He was very thin in Looking. Very different kind of character. Yeah, he's really good. Everything yeah. he does in this is really good. Yeah. A lot of emotion yes. coming from him. Yes, for sure. For sure. All right, shall we recap this episode? Oh, yes, but I have to say something. Oh, because, please do. Because um, Commander Waterford, mm-hmm. I just have to say it again, like, it's killing me, Shakespeare here, and um, yeah. I just, for some reason, I am, every time I'm mad at him, and I'm like, you're supposed to be all nice and romantic, <laughs> and you're not, and I'm, like, really mad at him. It's really kind of funny, my reaction, because uh, Shakespeare in Love was such a, like, a, oh! Uh-huh. this movie and he's such a butthole in this one <laughs> to use a soft yeah, curse but word but he plays it very convincingly he really does so you know maybe he's just a really good actor he is and i know that of course yeah. i know that but um <laughs> i just personally had so much invested in shakespeare in love when i was younger <laughs> that i've had to remind myself but no yeah. he's great he does a great job the episode starts With a recap of the first season, very brief, they do a really good job of it, and it starts right where the first season left off, which is right where the book leaves off. June climbs into the back of a van that's run by the eyes. The eyes are like the surreptitious organization that watches for dissent, the police amplified So she climbs into the back of this van and they shut the door. You can tell June is unsure what to think. She's got maybe the hint of a smile because she's being taken away somewhere. And then the bullet casings roll out from underneath the bench and she is less excited to be there. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's the best way to put that. <laughs> she is definitely less excited to be there. Yeah. The van stops. You hear men shouting, dogs barking. June is pulled from the van. Her hands are tied and she is muzzled like an animal and ushered into another large group of handmaids. So they've all been rounded up. And then she sees her rebellious friend whose name is Alma and is of Robert is her name. So, you know, of course, June is of Fred because Fred Waterford is her commander this was of robert i hate that i hate that but i love you know it's such an mm. there's something just completely dehumanizing about it and it tells you really everything you need to know about gilead yeah absolutely it really does interesting it's like i hate it but it's such a good it's such a good way to tell us so much about the story (laughs) true (laughs) Uh, The women are ushered down a hall into a field, and it's Fenway Park in Boston. June turns around, and she sees a huge gallows constructed. And the women are all forced up the stairs into these gallows, into nooses. Alma urinates herself out of fear. The women are they're terrified, understandably, and they comfort each other as best way they can with, you know, however they can touch one another glances they're all sure that this is it this is the end a lever is pulled and the four falls but only a couple of inches it is completely terrifying oh my gosh well and you know it's the beginning of the first episode you know they're not going to kill them all exactly but you don't know what's going to happen if it's going to be some and not others or you just it's, they build that tension. They do a great job with it. Then Aunt Lydia appears, quoting something that sounds like scripture. Here's what she says. You will love the Lord thy God with all your heart. You shall walk with him and fear him and cleave unto him, and you shall obey his word and the word of his servants here on earth, or you shall feel the pain of his judgment, for this is his love. Let this be a lesson to you. Perverse. Yes. And by the way, not scripture. Nope. We're going to get to that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there. Because, oh, oh, yes. Because I was like hyperventilating watching it a little bit. Yeah. And you Mm -mm. know what? In the whole setting with Fenway and all of that. Oh, yeah. 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 So all the women are released, and there's a really great voiceover of June praying, Our Father who art in heaven, seriously, what the AF? And I'm like, uh-huh. Yep. 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 <laughs> also yep. not scripture. <laughs> no, also not scripture. Not typically how that prayer is said. No, but. Not generally. I fully resonated with her response there. Uh, Yeah. For sure. So then we have a flashback. June is tying shoes and negotiating with her daughter about breakfast. Her husband, Luke, asks her to pick up stuff at the pharmacy. She asks him to sign her birth control prescription because they won't fill it. And they do check at Walgreens. They check for a husband's signature. These are just so... 
uh, poignant ways of yeah. showing how the culture has changed, but not that much. How uh-huh. easy it is to change a trajectory and have it not be so, um, feel so, I don't know, I want to use the word crazy, but then I owe something to a jar <laughs> somewhere, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But to make it feel like not that big of a deal, don't, don't respond, don't overreact, which is something our culture right now with this pandemic, with COVID-19, we're dealing with. That, yeah. that weird feeling we all get when something has completely changed and yet we are holding fast. We are convincing ourselves it can't really be that bad. Um, and that's where she is in this scene. Yeah, it's, oh, it's troubling. But then, but it's troubling and you can tell that they're both bothered by this. But at the same time, they're still hopeful because they agree they both want to have a baby. She says, I'll have to pick up the prescription. And he's like, yeah, don't pick it up. Right. So they find a way to cope and they find a way to adapt. And then they're completely sure this can't go on forever and that it couldn't get worse. (laughs) As somebody living in worse, suddenly. Suddenly. It can can get worse. It can can get get worse. It can get a lot worse. It can go sideways real fast. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, we'll get there too. Um, <laughs> we'll get there too. <laughs> so then we have at the Red Center, the Rachel and Leah Center, where they have their education to become handmaids. <laughs> Jackie's making retching faces. That's good. <laughs> uh, it's a converted high school. The handmaids are all kneeling in the rain, holding rocks at arm's length while Aunt Lydia lectures them and walks around cattle prodding them unexpectedly. And all of this is punishment for refusing to stone a fellow handmaid, Janine, at the end of the last season. She was suffering postpartum depression and had a lot of trauma from the situation she was in and stole her baby as a whole thing. Like her actions weren't right, but they're really understandable and they're absolutely just a result of the trauma that she had gone through. Oh yeah. Fully understandable, you know? And what's interesting is that Janine is this character who has learned to put down her rebellious streak um, and learn to be very adaptable and caring and somehow always sees the humanity in everyone, including Aunt Lydia. And so when she kind of breaks it really is a tragic thing. It's not a rebellious thing. It's a, she's broken. Um, and she's even willing to be stoned. Like she just kind of accepts her fate in that scene at the end of season one. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. So then someone comes and whispers in aunt Lydia's ear. And we learn that what she whispers is that June is pregnant. June is taken in from the group and she's given dry clothes and soup and Aunt Lydia tries to tell her that Janine would have been better having gone to God quickly rather than being forced to live and suffer because now she's going to the colonies, which is a concentration camp type environment nuclear fallout and things. Right. It's like a concentration camp, but it's also for for growing their food. Like the colonies is part of the whole economic structure and how they have created 
a way to make a caste system, honestly, that then supports them because the world's climate and the world's uh, resources have not been taken care of. And so all what we find out kind of all the world is suffering, but that Gilead is actually in some ways doing better, which is just maddening. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, they they let's grow our food where there's nuclear fallout. That sounds like a great idea. It's really weird, but they they are the epitome of they justify the means because of the ends instead of looking for a good way to achieve the good result. Yes, they have no care, and the ends really aren't all that good. They really aren't, (laughs) but that's how it is. Ends justify the means is always a band aid to a surgical wound. So June refuses the soup that she's offered and Aunt Lydia chastises her for leading her friends into consequences that she herself will not have to face because of her own pregnancy. Lydia then introduces June to of Wyatt, a handmaid who is chained in the basement for having tried to drink drain cleaner. And uh, June goes ahead and eats the soup because she does not want to be locked in a basement anywhere. As she's eating, the wet handmaids all file in and her friend Alma slash of Robert is taken to the kitchen, handcuffed to a burner and tortured by burning her hand by with a gas flame. And man, June's stoic look of just, I'm going to eat this soup and do what I need to do is fine bit of acting right there. Yeah. Then we have another flashback. June looks wistfully out of a window at work. She's been editing agricultural economics in early modern Spain and Portugal. She is smart. Very smart. Very smart. In case we didn't already know that. She had a smart person job. <laughs> a smart <laughs> Before person job. Before all this happened. Yes. A co-worker brings her her purse and... Her phone's been ringing. Madison Grand Elementary School has been calling. And she calls and introduces herself as June Osborne, the mother of Hannah Bankhole. And the secretary then proceeds to call her Mrs. Bankhole. Yes. Even though that's not her name. It's a subtle, subtle dig. Hannah had a fever. And because they could not get a hold of her immediately, they called an ambulance and sent her daughter Hannah to University Children's. And again, they call her Mrs. Bankhole. So she runs there to go pick up her daughter, make sure she's okay. It's a really, t- really relatively minor illness. And the nurse takes her out in the hall to question her. Here are the, some of the questions that she asks Is she your biological child? Why did we have such a hard time reaching you? So you work full-time? Your husband works full-time? Where does he work? What's the plan when Hannah is sick? Did you medicate your child before school so that you wouldn't have to miss work? I mean, that's a fair question, but she didn't think her kid was sick. No, I don't. she thought she had like a typical... Yeah, just like, you know, maybe she didn't sleep that good the night before. And sometimes that can make you feel a little hot. I'll give you some Tylenol. You'll feel better. And Well, and the child is like young enough that even if she had a little fever, it might have been just from, you know, teeth being loose or coming in or growing pains. I mean, six-year molars coming in. Yeah. 
the head caused you to run, and it was a low fever. Well, actually, I don't even think we would call it a fever, right? No, like it wasn't no. wasn't a one hundred and one, and I don't even no. think it was a hundred and point four, if I remember correctly, from yeah, the I show. And so I've right. ugh, come on, yeah. And then the nurse makes super condescending remark. Children are so precious, we have to make sure they are in a safe home environment with fit parents. Yeah, it's a little scary. Of course, the backdrop to this context is that they have no birth rate anymore. Right, yes. So they've become, you know how you are when you're, well, let's look at our pandemic. If (laughs) anybody who was low on toilet paper went nuts... And they all bought all the toilet paper. And now there's not enough toilet paper. But when there's something that's precious, which is sad to say, we all, well, toilet paper is really precious to us. And I, <laughs> and I fully resonate with that. But toilet paper is precious. And when you get afraid that there might not be it anymore, you kind of go overboard. Well, with the children, can you imagine if our birth rate dropped that low or if you had that many stillbirths, how much yeah. fear people would have and how much control they would want to have to hold on to and to make perfect the life of any child? Because A, it's not just the human race that's at stake, it's, it's children. Like, Oh my gosh, you know? So it's from this context that you can kind of have an empathy for. Yeah. I don't know. But on the other hand, you can see how people are perverting the fear and the compassion for their own gain of control and power. Yeah. Yep. Nail, you hit it on the head. (laughs) (laughs) Then we're back to Gilead, quote unquote, modern day, whatever. You know, when June's in Gilead, June's at the doctor's office, Serena Joy Waterford arrives and she's telling uh, June that her shenanigans are over, that that now that she's got a baby in her, that she's going to cut it out and fly right or pay the price. And June tells her, don't get upset. It's bad for the baby because the <laughs> because the commander's wives despite the fact they are not pregnant, are supposed to pretend that they are pregnant alongside their handmaids. Because that's not creepy and weird at all. Creepy. (laughs) Uh, Doctor and Commander Waterford arrive. They do the transvaginal ultrasound uh, because it's so early in the pregnancy. And Serena changes her tune once she has the promise of a child. There's a heartbeat and she is very happy to hear it. So as the ultrasound tech leaves, they have a typical Gilead exchange of uh, praise be and praise be and blah, blah, blah. And as he leaves, he says, Godspeed, June. Now, of course, he should have called her of Fred, but he calls her June. And this is, you know, a little bit of hope in an unexpected place. How exciting. She goes to put her boot on and finds a key with a tiny little red square on it. There's a locked door also leading out of the room in a different direction. And it also has a tiny red square on it. So she knows that that key will fit. She goes out through the door, runs down service stairs, following red squares along the way until she finds an open refrigerated service truck. And she gets in and an unseen person shuts the door. Of course, they notice her absence 
very quickly. They did not have a lot of time to make that work. And they did it, which pretty impressive. There are people everywhere looking for June. So while June's in the cold truck, she's remembering the same day when she's brought her child home from the hospital and the whole world went sideways when Gilead took over. There's a well-coordinated set of, let's just call them what they are, terrorist attacks where they, the government was taken over. They killed all of Congress and they're watching this on the news and June and Luke are just terrified and afraid for their sweet daughter. And then we're back into the truck it arrives at a warehouse and the driver tells her to stay inside. Someone's coming for her and inside is waiting Nick, the dri- commander Waterford's driver, whom is actually the father of the child that June is carrying because Waterford can't make babies. We don't believe. Well, uh, him, like a lot of others are supposedly sterile. And right. this is, this is part of what's went wrong is that we've somehow, evolved or adapted as a human race to have issues now with childbirth Mm -hmm. and as much as they put it on the woman and said it was the woman's fault nobody will admit that it's actually the sterile men right which is why it's all about the handmaids they think the women can't bear the babies but it's actually the men who aren't providing good genetic material right and so but that doesn't fit in the patriarchy no it doesn't (laughs) So alas, handmaids. Yeah. So Nick tells her that it's too dangerous to leave the city, but that she'll be safe here in this warehouse for the moment. He gives her new clothes, tells her to cut her hair. They very much are, you know, a hair is a woman's glory and all that mess. So having short hair would be not something that would happen there for a woman. So June is shedding this captive life. She's reveling in her hair that she's just cut herself. And as she runs her hands through it, she feels the tag on her ear. that It tagged her like an animal on her ear. And so she uses the scissors that she cut her hair with to cut the tag right off of her ear. And then she burns it all. It was pretty fantastic. It was. It was gruesome and empowering and kind of amazing. And it ends with June's voiceover. June Osborne from Brooklyn, New York, five feet, three inches in bare feet, 34, viable ovaries, free. I was like, yeah. Oh, Oh, man, this season's a lot darker than the first season. It is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I would say I would say it's more overtly dark. Yes. The first season's dark, but they're still trying to convince you that it's not that strange. Sort of the way that like the flashbacks show you how they were trying to convince themselves and everybody was convincing themselves it really wasn't that strange. Right. When it really was. Yeah. Refinery twenty nine had a few thoughts on how dark the season really was that uh, even the handmaids deserved death by Gilead's standards. They're too valuable an asset to eliminate in quantity. 
So when they took them all in, we all should have known that they weren't going to hang all the handmaids. No. They needed them. They have to have them. They have to have them. They don't have to have them sane, they think. They think. it's That's what's so maddening. And then that's what's also so revealing. It belies their power play because they aren't really trying to solve the problem. They're really just using the problem as an excuse to power grab and it's shown because they adhere to all of these things that are supposedly right but on the other hand they allow all this other stuff to happen that is so obviously not okay for the babies for their even in their end goal so it's kind of ridiculous it is ridiculous and then we're really we see how very surreptitiously conservative it's becoming when mm-hmm. these flashbacks, you know, that they can require a husband's signature on a woman's prescription that they refuse to call her by her own name rather than her husband's name, that they evidently never called her husband to ask him if he was available to pick up her child. Right. Yeah. I mean, they never did that. And it just, it's a lot of little small things that should have been more of a red flag. You would think it would be more of a red flag, Mm -hmm. but tends not to be as much as you think it should. And they also mention how these flashbacks are the point of showing that this regime kind of crept in before it burst in that mm-hmm. it, they had been laying the groundwork for this for a long time. And yeah, it doesn't, it make you wonder this is where you get all conspiracy theory. Like <laughs> who's planning what now? Oh my goodness. Well, it just shows you how easy it is to use the same mechanisms that spread good things and create good cultural change or create good new culture can also be used to create new bad culture and how easy it is to use the same sort of tactics and branding and things of that sort in a negative way, Um, which is why it can't ever be about the form. It has to be about the content. (sighs) You know, just don't fall for something looking like it's right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you have to address the content at hand. You know, and that's hard. That's hard for anybody. Yeah. The last thing that I wanted to point out from this article that was really kind of funny. This show could also be called June Looks Powerfully Into the Camera. Okay. <laughs> You're not wrong. It's so true. She she has more slow push close-ups than I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> and she is captivating to look at. It's amazing how long she can hold it. And how long she can still look alive while doing it. It's pretty amazing. Yes, it is. It's good. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Is It True? Are you ever afraid to talk about something? Do you avoid certain topics maybe with certain people? Like your racist Uncle Frank. Sorry, Frank. It's true. Do you want to learn how to have better conversations, increase compassion, and build bridges, not walls? We Don't Talk About That with Lucas Land is the podcast where we do talk about that with me, Lucas Land. 
get it wherever fine podcasts can be found. And we're back. All right, so is it true? Did they really film in Fenway Park? Did they? Because I want to know. N- no. they. Well, sort of. I mean, it's... <laughs> They did go and do some filming there of the stadium, but the actual filming that they did, they didn't do there. They used the footage to put in digitally to that go. That makes but, sense. And yeah. I'm sure, I was sure that was how it was done, but I really kind of hoped <laughs> mm-hmm. that they'd gotten in Fenway. Yeah. Well, and they, they really they had to get permission, obviously, because they had to go there and film. But they couldn't use the name without permission, anyway. Right in within the show, and they said that they were really glad that they had just won their first awards the week that they called to ask if they could film <laughs> Fenway Park. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Like, yeah, you know, being successful opens doors for you. I'm like. Excellent. That's great. We already mentioned that the uh, quote that Aunt Lydia had was not actually verses from the Bible. It's like Bible twisted. Right. There. I mean, like, for instance, she starts off correct. Yeah. Right. Yes. And then she kind of segues and pulls in a few words from about four different other verses. <laughs> so it's like a deep fake. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a deep fake video. It is like a deep fake and nobody could like say boo to her because not that many people are allowed to read the Bible. Well, and the women, well, I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Spoiler yeah. alert. The women aren't allowed to read. Right. Which we Which find we out later. Season one. Did we know that then? I can't we remember. We did know because they would go, there were no like signs with words above any shop. All of the cans of food were indicated by pictures. You're correct. Okay. Yes, you're right. You're right. So So we we did did know know that. that. Um, But because the woman can't read and yet a lot of people were from quote before. So if they were um, Christian and read the Bible, they might know. But for those who weren't Christian, they're not quite sure. Right. They have no idea. And, you know, and it was so sly because even if you were a Christian, you maybe don't know the whole verse. You Mm -hmm. start thinking, is that really what they said? Because Deuteronomy 6 starts, 6 5 starts the way she did. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And it's similar after that, but then changes. It's just, it's so, ugh. Yeah, there was I found bits of Matthew 22:37, Deuteronomy 5, Luke 10:27 and Mark 12:30. Those yep. were all the different all ones. All smashed together in yeah. awkward all, out of context ways. Yeah, uh, yeah, in ways that are not at all what the actual message of the Bible is. It was gross. That's why I was like super perverse. Mhm. Fair. Oh, so June had to get her husband's permission for uh, birth control, which is super hello regression. This is not great. So I started thinking, what is the history of birth control? Because it seems like 
you had to be married to be able to use it at one point. So I went and looked it up. Indeed, a woman named Margaret Sanger did the underwriting of the research that developed the first human birth control pill. She raised $150,000 for the project in her 80s in 1950, which is like kind of amazing, kind of great. Hey, I love hearing an older person who is excited about the rights of younger people. Well, just the tendacity to take on that kind of project, even at that age. But Mm -hmm. Margaret Singer is... uh... She, she's a pretty amazing person. So in 1960, the first oral contraceptive was approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And in 1965, married couples had the right to use birth control, ruling that it was a protected constitutional right to privacy. But 26 states still denied unmarried women birth control. And that wouldn't change for all over the country for several more years. That's very interesting. I did yeah. not realize how close I was to that history. Oh, yeah. That's a thing? I don't... Now, is there any documentation about their reasoning? No. Repression? Patriarchy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can feel like I can pretty confidently say patriarchy, but I don't have documentation on that. Oh, it's very interesting. Wow. So creepy. Yeah. What about uh, more permanent forms of birth control, like tubal ligation? So <laughs> this, this is going to stick in your craw, I have a feeling. Um, <laughs> February 25th, 2020, right before our lives all turned upside down, a Twitter user reported that her OBGYN wouldn't give her a tubal ligation without her husband's signature on a consent form. Wow. Now, I I have heard of this problem before. Yes. I just didn't really think that it was still happening in 2020. I know. It's so weird. I mean, as early as five, four years ago, uh-huh. um, I had a discussion with a group of women who were discussing this procedure or having ablation done or, or some sort of permanent birth control. And um, basically, in order to get their OBGYNs to do the procedure, they had to say that their intimate lives were painful to them and that it stopped them from having an intimate life. And that that was the reason why they went ahead and did it, because at that point, it was a detriment to their husbands, because they were unable to participate fully because of pain. And so, um, and it wasn't a documentation, but it was almost worse, because it was like, you had to go and manipulate your doctor. All of these women had male doctors, but they had to manipulate them by getting their husbands to kind of say, yeah, she won't um, be with me because of the pain, and so it's interrupting my life. Multiple people in a very small group of people that we were talking. Yes, as one lady had to advise another one on how she might be able to convince her physician. Wow, that's horrible. Somebody replied to her and said they lived in Indiana and said if you were unmarried and wanted it done, you had to have your father sign in. Oh, my gosh. No way. Like, recently. No way. And then another lady said that 30 years ago that 
a friend of hers had been forcibly sterilized after a C-section because her husband told the doctor he wanted her to have a tubal ligation while she was having her C-section and she didn't know about it until after the fact. No. Yeah. Ain't that something. Whew. This is, that's so scary. Yep. And then there was a woman, Erin Thompson, who had an article in Vice in 2019, who said it took her two years to get her tubes tied. And to qualify, she had to get cleared by a psychologist and write a two-page paper defending her choice. She had to do homework to get a tubal ligation. Now, if she was younger? She's married. Because I have heard... That also being younger, physicians are unwilling. And I yes. did hear a, a decent argument from a physician about this. Um, okay. I, I did because that enraged me to hear this because I, I have family and some other friends who are unable to get the procedure done because they're either unmarried and they're still of childbearing age, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But a physician was like, they don't want to be responsible because they're human too. And they know the power of regret and anger, and they're so afraid that if they go forward with that, when a, when a patient is making a decision from, say, painful menstruation or pain and things like that, that if there's any other way they can satisfy the problem, that um, they'll do that because they don't want to be the cause of somebody's lifelong irreversible regret about having children, which is such a primal, deep-seated thing. And so it's a human thing. Like the physician's just like, I just can't do it. Like, I just don't, I don't have it within me to give this to you because I'm so afraid that, that you're going to be ruined by it. And so it's like, okay, I, first of all, I understand the humanity of the physician and I want to respect the fact that, you know, as physicians, they don't have to perform surgeries that are quite frankly, in some respects, elective to a degree that would cause them mental harm, you know? And so many of the physicians, I guess, and I'd have to check on this, but part of it was that they've been sued because, and so part of it's the litigation because they've been sued because the person came back and said, well, you knew I was in pain. You knew I wasn't in right thinking and you did this anyway. And I'm like, I don't know. That sounds a little bit more like a fear than it is an actual trend. But on the other hand... I, I don't uh, know of anybody who's sued their doctor because they did a elective procedure that they signed a waiver with. Well, and I exactly. Mean, I don't I mean, think, I think it's a fear of litigation, not an actual thing, but that's my opinion. Wow. Well, what, what about men? You know. What about men? The, the, the gander, so to speak, if the goose has to get permission, how about the gander? Well, No, I mean, really, women aren't required by law to get their husband's permission or anyone's permission to have a tubal ligation. But some doctors won't perform a vasectomy without the consent of a spouse if they have one. But it's much less common for a doctor performing a vasectomy to require the support of a spouse for that situation it's just oh it's not there has to be some I don't know there has to be some sort of solution that does include the I don't know 
the desires, I guess is the right word, of the spouse. Because if you do make a commitment, if you are a spouse, it, it, it isn't great. If your husband just decided to go get a vasectomy and just took that option off the table, that's right. life-changing. And the same thing for a woman. If they were just to be like, whatever, I don't want to deal with this anymore and go get a tubal ligation. And that, that, that man now, now is, right. you know, removed of that choice. And, um, and in that case, it's not a choice anymore. Um, and that's, that's unfair to both parties, but I feel like we aren't seeing that happen. I think we're seeing something far more nefarious. Right. Because there's one thing about saying you have to have your spouse sign this so that we know that you've told them. Right. And a different thing to say, you have to get permission from your spouse. Exactly. Like it has to be like some sort of declaration of, of yes, this is, this is a decision I have discussed with my spouse. But at the end of the day, it's not the physician's job to make sure they're not the marriage therapist. Mm -mm. You know, I mean, no, they're not. It's not their job to, to, uh, get permission from anybody. You know, I mean, both parties, if one wants a permanent sterilization procedure and the other doesn't, they can choose to not be in that relationship any longer Mm -hmm. if that's not going to work for you. So, I mean, really, like I would say something that says, yes, I've told them not, I give them permission Right. Because w- permission or agreement is something they work out. Ultimately, I didn't have to sign anything when my husband had a had the procedure. Right. Nothing. Ultimately, ultimately, it just doesn't matter because the state doesn't legislate the success of marriage, and right. the state doesn't legislate the re- the success of any sort of relationship, and the state isn't responsible for the relationship. Therefore, even if it's wrong to just go get a tubal ligation or a vasectomy without speaking to your spouse, it is not the state's job to put you in time out for that. Right. The state yes. isn't the parent. Yeah. There's no reason why a woman should have to wait for two years and go through a psychological evaluation to have a procedure done. Right. There has to be some sort of extraneous sort of circumstances that would require that. And that would be a mental health issue. And that's not the case here. Right. Oh, so the transvaginal ultrasound that they performed, this would have been what they would do in this particular circumstance because it was so early in the pregnancy. It's not a fun experience in my opinion. It's definitely an awkward experience. It is. It's just weird because you expect them to go in taking a picture on the outside of the belly and then they don't and it's awkward. Especially the first time when you don't know what to expect. The second time I was like... Talk about your close-up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, of Wyatt, the handmaid who drank drain cleaner and then got locked in the basement, she was self-harming. I don't think it was a suicide attempt so much as it was uh, an inability to have coping skills to deal with this terrible situation that she was in. It's really, it's bad. It's very often people who do this are at risk because they've experienced trauma, neglect, or abuse. Check, 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 check. 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 (laughs) 
self-harm isn't really the same thing as suicide because it's just a, trying to cope. It's not necessarily, they don't really necessarily have a desire to kill themselves. They just don't have any skills and with to cope. And, you know, there are psychotherapy treatments that are uh, helpful. If you ever feel like you, dear listener, want to self-harm, you know, don't. You can text the word CONNECT to 741-741 and you can get help immediately if you're feeling upset or like you want to hurt yourself. Please don't. I know sometimes the situations, they feel inescapable and that can be overwhelming and you feel like there's nothing else for you to do. And so definitely call call the National Suicide Hotline or text CONNECT um, yep. to that number, 741-741, and definitely speak to someone um, because you're not alone and you're not no. the first one to experience it and you have a unique experience, but others might be able to help you navigate it even if they don't really know what you're going through. They can definitely empathize and maybe give you an outside view and maybe help help you navigate from that outside view and give you a hand through it. Yes, Yes, please, please don't harm yourself. And of course, uh, as always, I'll put a link to that on our social media as well. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment. You can find us on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod, or you can send me an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, while you're at home with your kids, go ahead and send me an email because I'm home with my kids and I'll respond to you so just (laughs) yep if you want to talk about something i'm around now time for our psychology break Ooh, so much to (laughs) talk about hey torture leave handmaids alone (laughs) that's what i thought of because uh yeah mock executions are a prevalent form of torture what they did to those handmaids was flat out torture. Uh, How Stuff Works has a really interesting article about what mock executions do to a victim, threatening a detainee's life or the life of someone that they're close to. They blindfold them. They might hold an unloaded gun to the back of their head and pull the trigger. Any clear impending threat of death falls into this category. It is expressly prohibited by the U.S. Army and all branches of the U.S. military. They are not supposed to engage in this sort of behavior. And despite the fact that many countries have bans against mocks execution, they still happen on a regular basis. So that stinks. But does torture work? Not as much as you think it might. Nope. Not hardly at all. Really, maybe only if you're Jack Bauer. (laughs) Yes. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, that's a series called 24 Uh with Kiefer Sutherland. It plays Jack Bauer. It's fictional. (laughs) So uh, Shane O'Mara in Psychology Today stated this, torture is pointless, useless, and degrading for all involved. There are better ways to gather information from other human beings. So it's really just a total and utter failure there. And there's overwhelming evidence to support this, that torture, it doesn't work. It's 
not a good way of getting information that extreme stressors applied in torture can force the brain into a relatively narrow space, which makes them maybe even incapable of telling information that they know. Yeah, the false positive rate and uh, the accuracy of information retrieved there is is not worth the time because you'd be better off spending your time using other tactics and other methods to gain information that's actually valuable than to right. throw, which is much worse than a Hail Mary. Like, yes. you know, it's not hardly even a Hail Mary. Well, people who are being tortured will really confess to just spend anything. Mm-hmm. It's also really like horrible on the people doing the torturing not frequently are the people who are doing the torturing themselves, the people who are desirous of the information. It's more about they have it, the quote unquote wet work gets done by somebody else. And those people suffer, suffer quite a lot of psychological damage inflicting the torture. So it's just bad all the way around for a lot of reasons. Yeah, don't do it. Uh, So, yeah. And so when we're talking about a psychology of crisis, because the Uh flashbacks in this episode, um, they really start to hint at what it was like to see their world go sideways and how that changes. And um, it's kind of, I don't know, not what we're going through now, but we're experiencing a type of it with this pandemic and everybody sort of staying home and implementing this extreme social distancing to try to slow the roll of this viral contagion that's out there. And um, so what's interesting is how people respond to a crisis. And um, the CDC actually has a downloadable PDF about um, the psychology of a crisis. And everyone should read it, not just organizations. I mean, everyone, because we are people, so we're not immune to those same reactions just because we recognize them. But if we recognize them, we might be able to overcome some of it. And so there are four ways that people process information during a crisis. Um, and we'll post this link in our in our show notes and maybe on Facebook later. Yeah. Um, so first of all, we simplify messages. Um, so for instance, we don't fully hear the information because of our inability to juggle multiple facts that are coming at us during the crisis. A lot of times we can't remember much of the information, um, not as much as we normally would, or we misinterpret confusing action messages. And so we've all experienced that. Like, what do we do? I don't know. This news station saying this, this news source is saying that. Um, and then we remember like one kind of key thing about it. And then we miss interpret that. Another thing that happens is we hold on to current beliefs. It's one of those, it just can't be as bad as they're saying, or it feels Mm -hmm. like an overreaction. It's really hard to respond to something that hasn't happened yet. If, If we all stay at home for eight weeks and then not a lot of people get this virus, everybody's gonna go, well, see, it was an overreaction. No, it worked. Okay, so it's hard to have confidence in that really out there, out of the box idea that's happening and have confidence that the measures you're taking are are worth it. We look for additional information and opinions. So this is where that discussion happens and whether that's a healthy discussion or not is a whole different discussion. (laughs) Um, And we believe the first message. 
It's really yeah. hard to change our minds when the first message is one thing, like it's not going to be so bad. And then the second message is it's not going to be good. And then yeah. the third message is prepare for the worst. We really have right. a hard time letting go of that first initial thing. And so those are the four ways we typically get time to process through. And you can see this playing out in society the way that we're approaching, you know, this weird place that we're at. Right. Wow. Isn't that interesting? God, this show is way more relatable than it ought to be. I know. I know. And it's scary because you do see that coming out in the flashbacks all the way from season one to season two as you hear them kind of like hear bits and pieces and go, nah, that can't be true. So they hear a bit of it and then they go, nah, that really can't be true. I'm sure it's going to be fine. And then you find them talking to other people and kind of getting opinions like with... um, with June and her best friend Moira and like how yeah. they're kind of talking about it. And then you could see them kind of go back to that first message of being like, it's really not going to be that bad until it really just is. Yeah. It's not just that bad. It's worse. It's worse than that bad. <laughs> it's worse than that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man. All right. Real life. Real life. <laughs> Women can't read. The Bible is kept from most people. In this reality, where we are right now, people are still trying to ban and censor the book, The Handmaid's Tale. No. Yeah. No. In August of 2019, a group of parents in Marietta, Ohio, wanted to have this book removed from an elective course at a high school. The students were allowed to choose books that they'd like included in this course. And a group of parents said it was inappropriate. Why? They said, based on its vulgarity and sexual overtones. And school officials said the complaints were very selective, that they'd taken the, ex- the excerpts of the book out of context. So, of course, they sounded salacious and awful and terrible. I was a high schooler when I read this book. I was like 17 when I read this. It had a profound impact on me in a lot of ways. And not just because it was shocking and salacious and sexual in nature in some ways, even though I wouldn't call the sexual parts of this sexual really. They're not. It's not about sex. It's about power. It's a violent book. Yes. Yes, it is. It's really violent. And they just had really like not overlooked it. And it's so well written. It was the thing when I didn't know what I was going to be writing about at on a test the next day, I would read this book because it made me a better writer. Oh, that's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think would... you said that in our first episode that we covered this. Um, yeah. And I, I remember thinking, that's a great idea. So, on a lighter note, <laughs> you want to see some fake gallows? Ooh! <laughs> There's a uh, a coal town, fake coal town in Freeland, Pennsylvania. It's called the Eckley State Miners Village Museum, and in October of 2004, and big gallows was built in the yard of a Skullkill prison 
that was used in a documentary called The Blue-Eyed Six about a family of 19th century robbers. So they made this documentary and they built these fake gallows. And when they were done making the documentary, they were like, what are we going to do with this? Well, those ended up at this Eckley State Miners Village Museum in Freeland, Pennsylvania. Thank you, RoadsideAmerica.com with their collection of weird things that you can find on your road trip. That's very interesting. And then I looked up the origin of the name Bankhole, B-A-N-K-O-L-E. And Luke in the show is an African-American man. And it's a West African name that means build my house for me. Oh, yeah. well, that's interesting. Yeah. So I don't know what that has to do with the show, but I thought it was interesting. And I looked it up, so I thought I'd tell you about it. Uh, <laughs> that's a very interesting uh, name. That's a uh-huh. build my yeah, house build for my me. house for me. I kind of like it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So martial law was declared in the show. And of course, we know that that's a real thing. That's a real thing. In the U.S. particularly under certain circumstances. And the circumstances around, you know, the entire uh, Congress being shot, that'd qualify. Interesting. So they used their own terrorist... uh activities mm-hmm. to force the martial law in which most of them were on their side. Yes. Do you think that the show is still a dystopia or has it moved into horror? I still think it's dystopia. You think it's dystopia? You don't think it's moved into a horror genre yet? No, I still think it's dystopia. I think it's because how do I say this? It is horror. It's it's horrific. It's horrific, right? But it's a little too much reality. Okay. It's a little too much reality for a for a show to be called horror. I think horror kind of rests in a little bit of the fantastical. Okay. Right there, or at least a little bit of the dark comedy that's underlying it. Even the most scary things, there's always just a little bit of a. You know. Yeah. Um, um, but with this one, there's just no <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, not instead, at all. This sends you down a different path of thinking about your world and about your things and about about very serious issues, which is great. I, that, I think that's what I love about it. But um, and it and it's still entertaining. I mean, there's a little bit of he he he, but it's always kind of like yeah, go girl, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. It's not really just an overarching like sit with the popcorn, you know? Right. It's so I don't think so. I think it's just a bit more of a dystopian I- ideal. Um, yeah. Yeah. What about you? That's, yeah, I am. Um, yes, when you put it that way, but it's still pre- it's still pretty horrific, and it is entirely fictional, and I. Hope it remains more fictional, though. Margaret Atwood did when pulling all the different things for both novels that she's written on this particular topic. She did pick things that have actually happened around the world. They didn't all happen together, but they were all real events that she pulled in and fictionalized. Nothing, none of the awful things that happened are things that were 
entirely fictionalized. They were all real things that happened. And I don't know, that kind of seems like horror to me. <laughs> well, it's, it's true horror instead of like horror genre. Yeah, instead of like, yeah, instead of the slash em up. So yeah, yeah, I guess still dystopian. I mean, even if you think of movies like The Ring and stuff like that, it's still got this paranormal sort of yeah, fear thing. I don't know. I, the dystopian of it is definitely... I mean, people compare it to 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I get that. Um, I do, however, think that hers, because it shows you the subversive nature of it, she sort of takes a, what if a cult got a hold of a nation? Like, what Ooh. would it look like if a cult mentality began to grow and enough people then had control? But the truth is, if we look at our history books and we read about, you know, the medieval ages, I mean, it's been long enough now we throw tag on festivals. Right. And we go watch people be all, like, medieval, and we think it's a freaking hoot. But yeah. the truth is... It's all romanticized, and it's... It was horrific. Like, if you go to a medieval festival, we don't call it medieval. We call it Renaissance, and it's not. Right. It's all medieval. And um, and then there's always the guy with the little, like, stockade that he's in walking around and then, like, <laughs> acting like a court jester. And we really, lo- like, love a lot of the things from that period, which I totally understand. Um, but on the other hand, we sort of sanitize the whole story, but that was horrific. And it was about keeping certain people in power. I mean, Bloody Mary over there is not just some urban legend. There was a queen named Mary who hung people for being Protestants. Henry VIII's daughter. Yes. yes. It, Mm -hmm. it, It really was horrific, but we like to sanitize things. This is why Noah's Ark is a daggum, you know, pattern for a nursery. No, this is not yeah. a pretty story, y'all. It's not a children's story. Whether or not you think it's like a fictional or a, or a fable or a proverb or really happened, either way, it's not pretty, y'all. <laughs> no, it's not a children's story. Oh. They just like it because it's got animals in a boat. I'm like, just buy animals in a boat. Why? Yeah. <laughs> The animals can go sailing. Yes, why not? <laughs> we don't have to tie it to uh, the snow is our story. So the same thing with this 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 uh, this series okay. and this book. I, I think that um, it's easy to sort of want to sanitize it a bit and make it a horror movie, but I think yeah. it's a little bit more of like uh, there's a lot of cults who operate just like that. Wow, okay. not if not in detail, in essence. That's fair. All right. So next time we're going to talk about H.H. Holmes, America's first serial killer. This is available on Amazon Prime. It's about an hour long. So if you're unfamiliar, H.H. Holmes is really America's first serial killer in 1893 at the World's Fair in Chicago. He was a doctor who was kind of low-key, but it was super dangerous to be at that World's Fair, and it was all because of this man. And we're going to talk all about it next time. Sounds like fun. Yep. 
Thanks for listening. We know that you make a choice when you listen to us. We don't just come on the radio and you listen and we so appreciate it. We hope that you'll tell a friend, please rate and review. We ask for five stars. If you can give that to us, we would super appreciate that. If you feel like you can't give us five stars, let us know why. Tell us what we would you'd like to have different. And again, while we're here in this time of uncertainty and crisis. If you need to just talk to somebody or want to send us a message, we'll get back with you. Join us on social media. We always respond to people on social media and we would love to connect with you. So thanks for joining us. Yes. Thank you for joining us and we will see you next time. Bye.